Welcome to Working Code. And now your hosts, none of whom have ever seen a failing unit test, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. All right, it's show number nine for February the 10th, 2021. And today our epi- and today our topic is going to be testing. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. Yes, I flubbed. Uh, but before right we get out into... The gate. <laughs> yeah, well, before we get into that, let's do our triumphs and fails. Uh, ben, how about I come to you first? What do you got? Sure. I, uh, I'm going to go with a fail this week, being just that I'm exhausted and I've felt exhausted all week and I can't really chalk it up to poor sleeping or anything. I, I just I feel mentally disorganized. I feel like I'm not uh, managing my time very well. And I'm also just having a lot of trouble getting comfortable in my chair. I have a lot of uh, soreness kind of just in my neck and in my shoulders. And I don't know if I'm leaning back too far or not leaning back enough from the height of my desk is wrong. I'm not quite sure just, what it is. You're like just you, too swole, bro. <laughs> you need to lose some muscle mass. You're too swole. <laughs> I, I just, I don't know. I keep, uh, I mean, this is the, the best thing about having a standing desk uh, is that I never stand, but I always have a perfectly <laughs> heighted desk mm. for my chair. But uh, It is great for people with long legs there you go. to sit down at. <laughs> I'm, I'm constantly adjusting quarter inch this way, quarter inch that way, trying to find that sweet spot. But um, yeah, it's just been a, just felt like a long week. Mm. Man, I, I'm going to follow that up because I am right there with you. Um, I actually tweeted and was like, hey, guys, who has a desk chair that they love? Because I am to the point where I need to go buy one. Like, I have the same failure as you. I am on a heating pad with my neck and <laughs> shoulders because I it, it just hurts from my tailbone up to the base of my head. And I just feel like I'm kind of falling apart. And I, and I can't get my desk up high enough to where it needs to be or low enough. I don't know what's going on. But that's right you, now. That's what you get for being such an Amazon, Carol. I can't help it. <laughs> I have six feet of legs and they have to go somewhere. Okay. <laughs> like right now, like if you guys could see me, I have pushed my desk chair into the foyer and I have a stool at my desk sitting on it. I have the kitchen chair in here. I have my kids desk chair in here because I'm trying to literally. <laughs> find anything that will relieve the pressure off my shoulders and off my mm. neck and it's just oh, it's not working like i can't sleep yeah it, it's not fun yeah. and uh the other failure i have besides that is i updated my ubiquity hardware and i got the warning that says hey you know don't forget this firmware you really need to do a backup i was like sure i'll do a backup and then forgot to do the backup and said yeah sure let's keep going and i lost everything. Oh, no. And this isn't like just, oh, it's your network. You don't have your passwords. I have seven networks in my house and everything <laughs> is subnetted <laughs> off. So like none of my IO devices know anything about my computer or phones or cyber. Like everybody is on their own thing. So nothing knows about each other. So I'm like, oh, this is going to take my entire weekend to fix. Mm, that sucks. So yeah, that was not, not a fun day of fixing. I, I love ubiquity, but yeah, that's. Imagine, that's a pain. yeah, imagine having to redo every tag you have, every setting. Can you once you do get it back on its feet? Is there like a way you can do a backup at that point so you don't have to remember yeah. to do it before you? Yeah, and I had automatic backups on, but apparently I had turned it off at some point. So the last oh, no. backup was like three months ago. So I was like, well, just starting over, I guess. It's not really going to help me much right here. So, yeah. Failure. Yikes. Well, good luck with that. 
I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to jump in here and go next because, uh, I'm just real excited. And also I feel like I usually go last. So, um, <laughs> jump in here. Uh, I know on like pretty much every show, maybe there was one or two where I had my triumph or fail with something unrelated to this big migration that my company has been doing. And I'm not saying that this is going to be the end of it, but this is a, a big one. So, uh, today and yesterday we, uh, have been deploying all of that migrated code to production. We have 13 customer servers at the moment, and nine of them, as of this afternoon, have been moved over to the, the new, the whole new stack um, in production. We have the last four we'll do tomorrow, and uh, you know it's not without. It hasn't been without some some frustrations and some bugs, but we expected that, right? You know we made the conscious choice to go to production knowing we didn't have a hundred percent, um, you know, everything tested and we just figured, you know, we've got the critical paths covered. We've, you know, we, we know that credit cards can be charged and that, you know, information is not going to be lost and the, the things that break, you know, we'll fix them. Uh, and, debug it live. Yeah. Right. And, <laughs> and of course, uh, you know, four forty-five this afternoon, uh, uh, you know, something came up and I'm sitting here like trying to, uh, smash through it and get it fixed so I can go eat my dinner and, and get back in time to record the podcast. Uh, so it's, it's happening. We're, we're going to production <laughs> and I'm, I'm just so excited. Uh, and, uh, I haven't mentioned this yet, but we're recording. It's still January, it's January 28th. Uh, so we are, it looks like knock on wood, uh, probably going to hit that deadline of the end of January to get all uh, all these boxes moved over cool. to, to the new code. So super, super psyched. Congrats, so, bro. That is awesome. Yay. So what do you have? Do you, do you currently have the old servers and the new servers all running behind a load balancer or something? Yeah, so it's all it's all behind an Amazon ALB. And the strategy for deployments was basically we're using uh, a mix of like large instances and mediums. And the some of them are on the bursty CPU stuff. So you don't get a... You, you, um, when your server is less active, you're like accruing credits. And then when it's more active, you're, you're burning those credits. And the thing that drives me nuts about Amazon, those bursty instances is that you start with zero credit. So if you turn the server on and you need to start using it immediately, then you're basically, it, it looks and feels like you're at a hundred percent CPU utilization because you don't have a CPU to use basically. Um, <laughs> and so the the strategy after we kind of figured out what's going on there is we boot them up like the night before we're going to start putting them into production and just let them sit there and accrue credits for 12 hours with nothing going on. Um, <laughs> and, and then then we can put them into to rotation. And yeah, it's all behind a, the, an ALB. And so we get it ready and we add it to the uh, target group on the ALB and like rotate the old one out. It's still hot. And if something were to go catastrophically wrong, we could swap them back uh you know in a minute or two of alb config very cool and then once everything's happy we shut the old one down nice all right tim what do you got well you know besides you losers ben and carol i I had a great week (laughs) (laughs) i mean i'm tired but you know today i today i realized i was it was six hours in, that had just gone by in a blink of an eye, and I realized for the first time in a long time, I hit the I hit the flow state. What? Oh yes. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I and you, you know that moment when you know you're in. It's like you know when you know you're in a dream, 
and you're like, I have control of the dream. And I was like, I know, I knew I was in the codes, uh, the flow state. And it just felt so good because it's been so long. Working from home is new to me and, and there's so many distractions. And uh, today I was just, I don't know, I was firing on all cylinders. I, and, and this is what impressed me. The most. I thought of you, Ben, actually, because <laughs> I wrote, I debugged and wrote a brand new regex statement. I hate regex <laughs> with everything oh, in my man, power. Oh, right? But I, I thought of you, I'm like, Ben would be so proud of me. I wrote this giant regex and it worked. I was so proud of myself. Yeah. So I just got a little giggly because I just imagined Tim sitting there just completely focused and doing nothing <laughs> but daydreaming about Ben. <laughs> <laughs> that is most of my days. Yeah, that's true. I, I have to say, literally not a day goes by where I don't use regular expressions. They are amazing. They're really powerful, but they like, my brain just can't process it. I have to go Google it and be like, how do you do this? And then when it works, I'm like, magic. Where I find that they really shine is in just searching through my code base, searching Mm -hmm. for method calls and stuff and other kinds of, you know, like this token followed by between zero and 30 characters and then this other token to try and find various uh, invocation patterns and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I was proud of myself. So, yeah. I, awesome. I, hit, I, I hit the flow state, and I, it may not happen again in a while, but today was good. <laughs> I was trying to think about like how, how you could describe the flow state. And for me, the only thing I can think of as a way to like illustrate it is I can compare it to how I feel when I'm like way over-caffeinated. Like, you know, that feeling when it's like I've had, you know, nine cups of coffee today and now I can see inside out through time and I don't have any blood left, just vibration. And I'm going to go alphabetize the alphabet because it's all wrong. I'll explain later. And then I'm going to go fight the moon. Like, I, uh, that is not that way for me. <laughs> that kind of just sounds like a high. That, that, sounds, aw- that sounds awful. <laughs> I want to be there, Adam. My, mine is very, very zen-like. It's yeah. like I... I, I I don't even realize time is passing and I'm writing things that are working without even putting forth, I feel like effort. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's what it is for me. Yeah. I'm more like, more like you, Tim. I find myself, I'll sit down and start coding and I kind of just feel like that giggly bobblehead, like the little bobblehead things going on and everything's just moving. And then all of a sudden my kids are home and asking about dinner and it just went from starting to, all this got done, and I didn't even realize I forgot to eat lunch. Like I just went through it and just never moved. I think the analogy I would use for me is it, I feel less like I'm pushing a stone uphill and more like there's a river just flowing through me. Yeah, hey, that's a really good mm. one. That one yeah. works, yeah. yeah. All right, so I'm the only one here that gets high off of coding. Got it. <laughs> I mean, I've never once considered fighting the moon, so yeah. I mean, to be fair, I aim for extreme over-caffeination on any given day, so... <laughs> Hence the Mountain Dew, yeah. So what are we talking about today? And let's talk about testing. Um, and so I think maybe up front we should acknowledge, you know, we're not testing experts. None of us, as far as I know, have been to like testing college. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, know, think, I think we've already decided that Ben's code's always good and he never tests anything. Right. Ben's code yeah. is the definition yeah. of correct. Yeah. Half of that statement's true. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so I guess really I just want to, to preface that and say like, 
you know, there's a good chance we're going to get something wrong. And if we do, then let us know. Hit us up on Twitter. Let us know. We need some haters, guys. <laughs> there's way too much love out there. So Somebody find that monster already. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so why test? Why should anybody test their code? I mean, because it's what we were told to do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> People yell at me when I don't test it. I mean, they really get mad if it goes live and then things just start busting. Works on my machine. That's yeah, good that's typical. Well, I don't do a lot of testing, so maybe I'll I, I can jump in and just say why I don't test. Like you test is, nothing. I test nothing, and that's not it's not like a philosophical approach to life. It's more just I'm not good at testing, so I I I will caveat and say I test manually. I test everything mm-hmm. very manually. Yeah. So, so, like, if you change something on a page, like, do you load that and then just make sure that your code doesn't throw, like, a giant error on the page? Yeah, basically. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, I, I, I love you. That's okay. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, clearly it's working out pretty well for you. you got a good career going, so it's not, it's not that you can't well, let me, succeed let me, in this industry without testing. I, I, I you know, it, it's... I don't want to say anything without adding maybe some additional context. So one, I work on a very small team. Two, all the people who work on my team are very, very familiar with the software. Three, we will never, ever hire a new engineer specifically for my team because I work on the legacy code base. The legacy code base is in the process of being phased out. Uh, I mean, it's eight years old, so it's not like this is a flash in the pan phasing out of code. Um, but there's, uh, I am definitely in a context where I don't have to worry about hiring a new person and then training them up on a system and then thinking that they'll touch something in the code that they don't understand how it works. That's that's like the farthest possible thing from my day-to-day operations currently. Sure. You just killed so many people's dreams of getting to work with you. Do you know that? <laughs> well, there's still opportunity, just not on my tiny little four-person team. I'm like, my heart's broken right now. <laughs> Plenty of other positions at Envision. Absolutely. Um, so now, would you say, Ben, that uh, you guys have, or even you personally, have experimented with testing and just not found a productive workflow? Or you just never bothered? Here, uh, I, I can wrap my head around testing when it comes to testing a, uh, a data workflow that is completely pure, meaning mm-hmm. you have a function or a component that has functions and you give it some inputs and it generates some outputs. I right. can 100% wrap my head around testing that. And sometimes actually when I'm writing code that deals with something like that, even though I'm not writing tests per se, I might write a scratch file that instantiates that component and sends data to it and checks the output just during the development process so that I don't have Mm -hmm. to actually load the whole application. Where it breaks down immediately for me is when I have to either A, involve a database, or B, Mm -hmm. involve a user interface. And I I know that there's all kinds of stuff that the the, uh, industry has has brought to cater to those problems. I've just never uh, taken the time to learn. But if I could 
uh, restate my question a little bit. Like, did you have you guys experimented with any testing tools? And so I know that your stack is primarily CFML. Correct. Um, have you guys experimented with any tools? And I guess this, I'm leading here because uh, mm-hmm. we have, and we are in a similar position with our remaining legacy CFML code, where 90% of the testing is very manual, and it's for a certain reason. And I'm wondering if we're on the same page there. I think, you know, we had uh, way back in the day, I think we had tried MX unit, which was sort of the mm-hmm. one of yep. the popular frameworks. And then um, I think no I don't test know, bots yeah, or anything. I don't, yeah, I don't think we ever got past that. Okay. I, I will say not I don't want anyone to think that nobody at my company tests. <laughs> Lots of people at the company test. Uh, just they're, just not on, yeah. they're just not on my team. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, I mean, I guess I was trying to lead you somewhere and it, we didn't really get there, but, uh, um, the, the reason that we don't have a whole lot of, um, automated tests for our CFML code is simply performance. So when we started our product, um, we, I wrote, I tried really hard to do TDD. I had, if I was writing a new uh, module or a new section of that module, I would work on code uh, or work on tests along with the code and try to stay ahead of the game there. Um, and what ended up happening was I had, you know, for my, let's say 500 functions that could run, I had 400 tests and, and I don't, I don't want to point a finger in any particular direction, but when you take the stack as a whole and you say, okay, now run my test suite and it takes 10 minutes to run those tests and your product is still in its infancy, my, my product, the project that I was working on, and you can see this long road of so much more work that has to be done and all the tests and it takes 10 minutes to run the tests uh, you know, early on, there was no way that that was going to be sustainable. And so we kind of mm-hmm. abandoned hope there. And uh, I have in more recent years and on a more recent stack seen way better performance of tests um, specifically in my case on node js and uh, like using jest and testing library um, and on the ui side with react Um, and so we are starting to get more into automated testing and finding it actually really helpful Um, and so I, i i guess what i wanted to say there is that the a perfectly valid reason to have few or no tests is if it doesn't work well on your platform like i don't want to point fingers necessarily at at cfml maybe it's uh, in my opinion uh maybe it's the jvm's fault right maybe the jvm is just not well suited to the type of programming and testing that i was doing um maybe but so i wrote um an application in c sharp and whenever you would actually run the entire test suite, like it gets ran at check-in. It doesn't, mm-hmm. you don't run it every time. You only run your tests on whatever functionality you're doing. And then there's full on like deployment tests. And then there's the check-in tests. So those tests still take, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to run to go through the entire application. So I mean, I think it's just depending on how you're running your tests when you're doing it too. Yeah. And I think another part of that, too, is something I wanted to get into later in this conversation, but it's it was still a kind of naive or naive approach in my testing strategy that early on. I didn't really have a good understanding of the difference between like unit tests and integration tests. And right. I was trying really hard to have unit tests for everything. And some of those unit tests were like 
uh, call this function and then go check the database and make sure that the data was changed in the way I expected it to be changed. And, and that's really that's, integration, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and not only that, but the, the amount of it I was trying to do was just too much. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was just bad all around. Part, partly bad tests, partly slow app server. Uh, so... Yeah, but I, I also want to say that if you are starting out and you're you're starting to add tests, don't let slowness stop you from doing it. Like, don't let something be like that that processing time or it taking the extra time be the the only reason why you aren't willing to keep moving forward with it. Well, let me let me gently push back against that for a second, <laughs> and and it's not so much a pushback as it is a thought that I had just this morning and I and the phrase uh, testing budget popped into my head hmm. I don't know if anyone's ever heard the phrase error budget no uh, which I've is, heard the phrase but I forget it, it's this concept where uh, I'm sure I'm going to mangle it um, but essentially <laughs> your system has an SLA a service level agreement uh, you know degree of uptime that it has to adhere to and and you have a certain budget in terms of the errors and the downtime that can be produced in a, in a particular period. And if you exceed that, then typically what could happen is, is, uh, like you can't deploy. You've, you've exceeded your error budget for the week or the month, something that's taken you over your SLA. So the idea is you can't deploy again because a deployment might introduce new bugs, which would push you further over the SLA. And I was thinking about, I was thinking about debugging incidents and, getting a page in the middle of the night and having to jump on a call and you see the problem and now you have to do a hot fix and push a deployment in the middle of the night, pants optional. (laughs) And imagine having to sit there and wait 30 minutes for your test to run just so you can push out a hot fix, which I thought to myself, that would drive me crazy. Yep. And I'm and I'm and I'm wondering if there is a sort of test budget that you can have for your team where you're like, here is the largest amount of time we're willing to let testing block a deployment. Hmm. And anything above that becomes tests that have to sit in an optional bucket where it's up to the developer to run them as they see fit, but isn't necessarily a test that would block deployment. I don't know if that's totally crazy, but the phrase testing budget popped into my head. Hmm. Is that something you heard or something you came up with? No, no, it just it just came to me. Oh, okay. It's been magic. I, I like the concept. Uh, and I think if, if it was something anybody was going to pursue, kind of something you said was like you have to figure out which tests are right. critical path, which ones are must pass, and which ones are like, uh, you know, these are low risk areas, I guess would be what the things I would look for right? to, to make optional. I gotta say, I I feel like a complete hypocrite on this, this podcast. Um, on this episode, yeah, I was like all the time or just well, right now. No, just this episode. Yeah, okay, thank okay, you, good. thank you. Yeah, the rest. Yeah, I'm pretty competent. I think the rest of the time, but today I really feel like a hypocrite because, and I say that because I, when it comes to when we have contractors do work for us, I require unit tests. I require so much mm. testing just because it's a way for me to validate the truth of what they're saying they've done. Yeah. Um, and so everything that, that we have 
that's done by third parties is very well tested and it's fantastic because I have a high level of confidence. And anytime I start a new project, if I have a greenfield project, I always start with with writing some level of unit test and then I get so involved in the actual architecture of the system that I put it off and mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I'm just going to avoid, you know, I don't need really need a test for this. Um, I'm not really sure where I'm going with this. So I'm not going to write a test first. So I'm kind of experimenting. Then my experiment becomes reality and my reality <laughs> becomes the, the release version. And then it's like, well, what's the point of writing a test now? So, yeah, I feel like a complete hypocrite when it comes to this. Yeah. Uh, so something you said there that I wanted to amplify is confidence. You know, it gives you confidence that they've done what what you what the spec was right that they've that they've satisfied the spec and that's what testing is all about right is it's in increasing confidence that you can deploy this code and nothing is going to be wrong with it right. and to the point where you know it, when i think about testing what the the pinnacle of testing for me is 100 percent confidence that i can deploy on my way out the door at 455 on friday afternoon with confidence that i am not going to get paged uh, with a high degree of confidence, not 100% confidence, but with a high degree that I'm not going to get paged on, you know, Saturday at 4 a.m. because some of that code that I just deployed. Uh, so, I, I want to say a whole bunch of different, uh, <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> things, but they're all bad words. I'm trying to stop myself. <laughs> it went wrong. <laughs> it failed. It As the English say, <laughs> went pear-shaped. Yeah, yes. there you go. <laughs> See, I think what differs between the team I'm on and the team you guys have is we have, I think it's 15-ish people touching the exact same code daily. Mm-hmm. So a patch I can put out today may have not even been in the code base they pulled yesterday when they started working on a bug or a week ago when they had theirs. So me writing that extra little bit of test actually, you know, gives them some accountability for what I've done and me some. I mean, it just, it works for us better. Yeah, it reduces regressions. Absolutely. Well, if we could, if I could circle back just to this idea of confidence. You have to and, dovetail when you circle back. And, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I, uh, this idea that you can trust code that's been tested. Not true. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, and this is probably because I don't test a lot. So I'm so used to to manually testing that I, in one of the past episodes I mentioned Rich Hickey. He's the creator of Clojure and, and a bunch of other stuff, I believe. And mm-hmm. in one of his presentations, he he asked the audience, what's the one thing that every production bug has in common? It passed it all passed the, tests. the tests. And and I Dang. And, and I keep thinking about that because <laughs> even if you have a huge test suite. I can't help but think you still have to do the manual testing because oh, yeah. what if something critical was missed? Or I, I, um, and, it, and I'm not saying you have to test exhaustively, but if you're working in an area of the application, I think you still it's still incumbent upon you to test the parts of the application that you've touched. So I think the exhaustive test suite, what that does is it catches unexpected bugs, unrelated or, right. or things that broke because you didn't expect them to break in a certain mm-hmm. way. And I think that's very important. But I, I always get hung up on this idea when people say, well, testing increases the velocity of application development. And I think it can only increase the velocity of application development if you're not testing manually. But 
I feel like you have to test manually, period. Well, but like to Carol's point, you know, sh- that that whole preventing regressions thing, you know, you and I are developing something sort of two different things in parallel and I commit mine and go on with my day and then you go and you rebase and you commit yours and you don't know whether or not you've broken the code that I just committed. Right. You know, sometimes things uh, touch or they share functionality and you change the function signature that I was using that function and you searched for all the, the uses of that function and mine wasn't in there because you hadn't rebased yet. And right. So, so just, just to be, uh, to clear, I'm, I, yes, it catches regressions and I think that's a huge value. My, my, where I take a little bit of issue is when people say that it increases the velocity of development over time. I, I have trouble embracing that. I will tell you, like, my workflow is to code test manually. Like, I am in the system looking at what I'm doing and making sure that everything I'm doing is accurate. Like, I'm still in there. Mm-hmm. And then when it goes to SQA, usually when it goes over to either code review or to the SQA team for them to start also manually testing it and running their test suite against it, I then usually start writing tests for it. So my test doesn't come after. So I mean, we do the manual still, so it doesn't, I don't feel like it improves the velocity any. I feel like it slows it down. I'd say this bit, Carol, that it, I don't believe it increases the velocity in the short term of, of a program. So let's say you have a, a brand new project. It's unfield tested and you're creating all these tests and all the tests pass Unfilled tested. Right. And then you put it in production and it fails, right? And so they pass the test, (laughs) but they still failed in production. That's obviously, so all those tests, you would say, didn't really increase velocity. Where I think it does increase velocity, where you have a long-term project that's been around, uh, it is stable. And that's kind of the project I'm working on is it's been around for many years. And anytime we add something new to it, the existing tests are are a point of truth for that project. Mm-hmm. I know that this has been a stable project for many years. All these tests passed, and now I want five new features. We add those five new features. They write the test for those features. Those pass, but the old tests fail. Well, now I, now that's it, kind of what to you said. It, it catches things that people didn't think about, mm-hmm. right? And so that would increase, that for me, increases the velocity for a project of maturity because it tells me I don't have to remember everything about every nuance of that program. Mm-hmm. I can just run the tests and they will at least give me a indicator of where uh, failures could occur and that saves me time. Yep. Uh, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll buy that. I, I guess I, I would only say that I think it's not as exaggerated as I feel like some people make it out to be. Oh yeah, nothing is ever going to be silver bullet True. level. Yeah. Um, so, and then uh, the other thing, I think we've kind of beat around this bush a little bit is like the different types of testing, right? So there's there's a lot of things that you can do in a lot of different sort of um, levels of testing. I guess is what I would how I would categorize them. So you've got like degrees of it. Yeah. Yeah. You've got Scope. manual testing. Manual testing is Scope. testing. There you go. Right. Uh, you know, it, and it is in my opinion, the slowest and most prone to human error form of testing. Yep. Um, and I think that is one area where, uh, automated testing 
undoubtedly beats manual testing is like no one is going to accidentally check a box and say the thing passed when it didn't pass if it there or a human might mistake the answer you know might mistake the the test results whereas a computer is going to if you if the test is well written is going to detect success or failure properly and uh, record that and they're repeatable on a faster time scale right so you can run the test and if something fails you can make a change and repeat that test very quickly um potentially faster than manual testing it um but then you have things like uh sort of static testing i would personally include in that um in that sort of level um things like using a type system a strongly typed language um that enforces things um in in i'm heavily in the javascript world these days so i'm thinking of like eslint that enforces some style rules but some like uh other rules that that help prevent common pitfalls um and then you've got things like prettier which will format your code um and and a couple of other things and those are like they pretty much run more or less instantly when you hit the save button in your editor um and they you know they they give you the red squigglies if you're using eslint and it's supported and so it's like oh hey there's a problem here i'll go fix that um and so that's testing that's helping you before you even like in line real time um and then you've got your like unit tests which i think we're all fairly familiar with and i think that where i the hole that i fell down where i did testing wrong for a really long time is i tried all i was really aware of was unit tests so i just tried to cram everything that i wanted to test and improve confidence in into a unit test and or i tried to use unit tests to do too much and that became a problem and that reminds me of a a very popular phrase i've seen going around in the javascript community which is write tests not too many mostly integration tests um yeah by i've heard that I'm going to see this is it. I I mispronounced names. Guillermo Rauch, I believe is, and he's the the CEO or founder of, um, Vercel. Um, and, uh, I think the, the takeaway from that is a couple of things, right? Like he says, not too many tests. So focus on what's important to test. Right. You know, 100% test coverage is not as important as I think a lot of people make it out to be. And he says, mostly integration tests, meaning, uh, unit test the things that are easy to unit test. So Ben, you had mentioned pure functions is basically mm-hmm. what that is. It, it, the only thing it does is take the input and give you an output. It doesn't read anything from any other context. It doesn't create any side effects outside of itself. It doesn't save anything to per, uh, to shared cache or anything like that. Um, it's input and output and that's it. Um, and those, those things are very testable. Um, and, uh, if you, if you can't test it with like pure function unit test sort of thing, then maybe it should just be covered by integration tests is kind of what I'm thinking. Um, or even end to end tests, which is the sort of the last layer. Or I guess, Tim, you were saying that, uh, end to end to end tests sometimes get called functional tests. Yeah. Um, I was thinking particularly of, so what we've been doing recently is a lot of our stuff is APIs. And so to test an API, we've been using REST Assured. Uh, so it's rest-assured.io, which lets you basically build a functional test to to call the API to pass 
different parameters to log everything that was sent and to log everything that come, comes back from it and, and to check that uh, what you were sending is gets the proper response back. Because, um, like I said, most stuff we're doing is APIs, so testing them, that is more important to me to know that if I send something to an endpoint and I send these parameters that I get what I expect, then does everything underneath the code, every single function inside all those calls, do they all pass the right thing? Right. Um, I, I, I feel I get more, when I'm doing it, that's what I'm doing because I get more bang for the buck out of that than worrying about does function whatever send me a, a numeric instead of a string. You know, sometimes I don't care. Exactly, yeah. The, the user doesn't care if your function, what type it returns. They yeah. care well, when I press the button, does it do the thing that I am expecting? Right. When I, when I ask for this, does it does it give me proper JSON and is it the right thing? And that's that's really mostly what I care about. And then and then sometimes we do uh, load testing with Gatling.io uh, to just basically build a whole bunch of requests and then scale it until the thing dies <laughs> and see where that that point is and what breaks. I feel like between rest assured and Gatling, this is just beautiful wordplay on it's amazing software. <laughs> rest assured. Take a load of my Gatling. It's funny. As someone who does very little testing, I still have very strong feelings about a lot of it. Uh, probably ill-conceived feelings. Um, but speaking about this idea of testing the API and not necessarily worrying about what methods are getting called under the hood, that's one thing that I've never connected with when I hear people talk about testing. It's this idea of being able to, I think they call them spies, you create yeah. these spies where you can see if private methods get called in certain ways. And I always think to myself, why do you care about your private methods? Like, mm-hmm. that's an implementation detail. That private method may not exist next week. Just mm-hmm. care about what your public methods are returning. And that should inherently test your private methods. And people have tried to explain it to me why you actually sometimes want to know. But I've, I've just never understood. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a you have a le- level of pragmatism. Uh, I think you've earned over the years. <laughs> Your heart matters, man. Your heart matters. These spies need to stop being monsters. That's right. One thing that I I I think is worth mentioning is that um, I have personally gotten a lot of value out of making small changes and deploying very often. Yes. And I think about what Carol was saying about she's working in parallel with her team and they're all working on the same stuff. And then you're merging things in and code that didn't exist two days ago now exists in the code that you merged into. And it's and that can be uh, fraught with peril. And I find if I can touch the smallest amount of code possible and then deploy that to production, it it significantly reduces the amount of damage I can even do. And it and it. Again, because I'm a very manual tester, it significantly reduces the amount of code that I have to test, the, the amount of interface within the application that I have to test. So uh, small changes deployed often is two thumbs up from me. I, want, I also want to throw out, um, we have had some interesting success using testing tools to enforce... Um, I don't even know how to describe it. So we're using we're using some testing tools to validate configurations uh, as part of deploys. So, for example, we're using a tool that is uh, like a dead man switch for uh, scheduled tasks. Right, you have cron jobs they run, and you want to make sure that they haven't died. 
use a service where we pay for a certain number of like records that that can be checked into and if they go too long without being uh, checked into then we get an alert that we can push off to our pager duty or whatever um, and each of those has a unique ID and so we have the, a whole bunch of those unique IDs in config to say okay when this job runs use this ID to check in and one of the rules that we have enforced on that config is that those IDs can't be reused anywhere else. It has to be for this job, and or it can only be used with one job for one customer. Um, and so, if it one like for example, when we spin up a new customer, we'll copy somebody an existing configuration file and start updating it for the new customer. And so that helps prevent those accidental copy and paste shares of those ids so by you know like you you check in a new configuration file and the tests run and it says well you you have reused this value and you have you know this setting is uh turned on but it necessitates that you have these these other settings filled out or you've turned on oauth but you haven't provided the oauth server id or anything like that sort of thing um so it helps us from misconfiguring things accidentally so when you said that at first, I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, like completely <laughs> lost right now. But it almost sounds like it would work too. Like if you were moving things between environments and say you had like a settings file mm-hmm. and you accidentally move like dev settings up, like would that be caught as well in that situation? Um, the way that we do our config, I don't think that that's something that we could test for. We like we have uh our, our servers are aware of what environment they are and all of our config is shared in one central location and you just say, okay, I want the config for this customer in this environment um, and maybe okay. a, a specific setting and it pulls that out of the, the repository and gives it to you. Interesting. Hmm. Now I'm curious more. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to show you sometime. It's not something I can make public, but we'll... Yeah, I, I definitely want to see because now I really am like wanting to know more. Maybe it's something we can talk about on the after show. Yeah. If I could uh, plug the idea of feature flags for a second. So earlier I talked about small changes deployed often. Yeah. Right. Another thing that helps tangentially to testing is feature flags. And the idea behind a feature flag is that you can deploy code but not necessarily have it turned on for users. So essentially you you decouple the idea of deployment and activation of a feature. And uh, the, the best thing about that is that, one, you can deploy changes incrementally to a feature that's not yet feature complete as long as it's behind a feature flag, which, again, small changes, less damage. Uh, but then once it comes time to turning a feature on, if you start to see errors coming through in your monitoring or you get paged about something, you can turn the feature flag off and direct users back to the previous version of the feature, uh, which allows you to, and this sounds terrible, but to do all of your testing in production (laughs) and to crowdsource your testing to all of your users, which sounds sounds really, really bad, (laughs) but is sometimes just the way you have to flush out really hard-to-find bugs. It's like A-B testing, but with bugs. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And it sounds like it sounds complex to someone who doesn't know, but it's pretty much just if is on, then it's there. Or if is off, then it's not there. You never have to go in and rip out anything. You just check a value. 
So I, I'm wondering now if, if that's sort of what I've done. I didn't know if that's what it's called. But so in, in the APIs that, that I write, I always version things, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll have a V1, V1. And so if I'm doing a new feature that could possibly be a breaking feature, I create a new version. Use increment, right? Yeah. And then, yeah, increment. And then I, I, I will, in production, just sometimes put someone on the V, you know, two two dash three and then just wait to see what happens <laughs> <laughs> and then i'm like oh that, that that didn't work so i'll turn it back to two dash two and um, i don't know what happened like, man <laughs> network latency or something yeah, it should yeah. be back up now <laughs> yeah <laughs> Sorry. there's a glitch glitch in the matrix yeah. it's gone well there's a there's a pattern called the strangler pattern which i think is basically what the is the concept that feature flags helps facilitate which is where you have um, two parallel implementations and then you slowly move traffic from one implementation over to the other implementation. Yeah. So the new implementation essentially strangles the old one. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then eventually you have everyone over to the new implementation. And if you let it soak for long enough, then you can kill, y- yeah, Murder. kill the old one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, Ben, you have that blog post about launch darkly. And, oh, love launch darkly. Yeah, and, and I, I've I've read it like several times, more than three. And oh, that's uh, right. That was in response to something you asked. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot. And, about that. and I I can't help. It, this is the way my brain works. I read that and I go, "This sounds so awesome!" And I instantly, without even like, I can read it and at the same time tell myself, commit to myself, I am not going to make an effort to implement this on my own. <laughs> and the third thread in the back of my mind is like yeah but you could just do this and do that and and that's how you could implement that piece and um the the part where i think i get hung up on it is like the uh splitting for users and Mm. and being able to control that that seems from the outside looking in having literally zero experience as a user of those tools um that seems to be the killer feature is the ability to like on the fly per user or per percentage of users, et cetera, et cetera, uh, turn it on and off. So take a step back. What is this post? Can you give a little bit of information about the post? I, I think Adam on Twitter or something said, hey, I, I've seen you talk about feature flag. What that? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds and like so Adam. I, so I think I went away and wrote like a tome on everything I love about feature flags. And I was like, here, Adam, check this out. It's probably, it's probably like a, like a two hour read. So, so what you're saying is, is like every other Tuesday. (laughs) It was, it was like, it was just the perfect opportunity for me to talk about feature flags because feature flags and, and we're getting off the testing topic, but feature flags are so amazing that I don't care. Uh, Like you said, it's kind of testing in production. Yeah. I think that's relevant. uh, Feature flags have, without hyperbole revolutionize the way that I do development because it just completely changes the way you think about architecting your code, testing your code, deploying your code, the whole application life cycle changes, the ability to deploy with safety, to deploy incrementally, not even just like features, but you can have percentage-based rollouts and you can have targeted-based rollouts. So I'm only going to turn this feature on for this particular subset of users like Adam was just referring to, where you could say, I'm going to do it for this particular subdomain. You can do it for, here's everyone who ends in uh, at harvard.edu email address. Um, 
and so you can really get very interesting with how you roll out your code and how you uh, apply changes to applications. I, I can't say enough good things about Feature Flags. I, I, I'm at a loss for words. Yeah, we will definitely <laughs> we'll we'll link the blog post in yeah. the show notes, and if you have a week to kill, you can go read it. A week <laughs> <laughs> sounds sounds like an episode topic. I like it. Yeah, I agree. So are we done with testing? <laughs> oh gosh, I feel like uh, I feel like we could. I personally, I could, and I think I proved this last week, but I feel like I could keep talking on this topic forever. <laughs> like I said, I feel like a total hypocrite. I, I make other people test, but I am not good at it myself. Yeah. And I, I like writing tests. Like it, it, I mean, I've said this before. It actually brings me joy. I get to think through things I didn't think about when I was coding it. Um, I get to kind of think about the paths that got me there and the paths that I didn't consider when I wrote the functionality. And then I know someone coming behind me has a little bit of insight on what was expected if they see a failure. Hmm. And they can maybe go, oh, well, this is why it's breaking and now I'm understanding more. I guess if we're to the point where we're doing like final thoughts before we wrap it up, mine would be the more that I learn how to test well and the more that I write good tests, the more I become a believer in automated testing. Amen. Yeah. You know, I I don't claim to be anywhere near the top of that mountain, but Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, the the more I do it, the better I get, and the better I get, the more I appreciate what I can get from it. And like I was talking about earlier, the confidence to push, to deploy, you know, 450 on Friday afternoon and go into a stress-free weekend is is valuable to me. Like, I don't want to have to worry about a last minute deploy and putting something off because we don't have confidence that we can deploy without issues. Yeah. And I would say as a principal in, in a business, I think that short term, I think testing is kind of a, a sunk cost maybe, but long term, I have seen the benefit of it. Uh, particularly whenever you're adding stuff to a mature system yeah. that those tests pay dividends later. They don't pay dividends now, but they do, pay dividends well they don't pay as many dividends now let me rephrase that before people jump on me um <laughs> but they do pay dividends in the long run you're about to get your official haters i need a yeah I'm <laughs> get my hater kevin mccabe come on be my hater yeah. <laughs> one thing that i've never connected with emotionally when i hear people talk about testing is when they refer to tests as providing documentation about how a feature is supposed to work hmm. And as someone who's tried to look at tests to understand why something's not working, I have found that they provide no insight into how the feature is supposed to work. Or I guess I should say specifically, they don't provide answers to the question that I have. So, for example, if I, if I look at documentation documentation and the documentation is ambiguous about something, like maybe I don't understand what a method's supposed to return or the range of inputs it can take. I think to myself, oh, I'll go look at the at this library's test to see what it can take. And it's like hundreds of tests mm-hmm. in all kinds of various incarnations of arguments and return values. And I'm like, well, that didn't help me at all. Yeah, that I'm, was way I'm confusing. I'm not going to spend three hours trying yeah. to parse through your tests to so, figure out that it can take an integer and a float. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. It's like, yeah, you can see that it takes an integer, but not necessarily the range or going to take a negative integer right to to say that testing provides documentation i think 
assumes that those tests are extremely robust and written in a very consumable way. And I think that's, I think you're overselling your, your, uh, your testing at that point. I don't, or maybe it's just me. Maybe I don't know. I just never, it, I, I never find them as a substitute for documentation. They are definitely not a substitute, but I do have a response to that. So if you go look at some of the test output whenever hours are running, it's true scenarios. Mm-hmm. So it says like the scenario, and that's what it's called, is a scenario is user came in with, say, three drivers. Then you basically put the then statement, the when, or the when, and the then statements, and it reads out like English. So it says, you know, this is what triggered it. This is what happened, and this is what occurred from that event. So if it fails, you have the ability to see where it was at. So it's not documentation, but it's more like your cases, like the case that got you there to see how it was working and see how it was functioning. Sounds like it would be most useful, like when the test fails, then you have sort of an immediate context for what went wrong. Right. I can go open the system and do exactly that thing. I can be that user. I can have that set up for me and go, okay. Here's how we got to this failure without having to go build all these test scenarios in the interface. Which is useful if you're trying to fix the error, but it it may not be useful if you're actually looking for some sort of architecture reason. No. Oh, no. It's definitely not so good for that. (laughs) Which I think probably is what Ben might be looking for. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and maybe, I mean, things that I think about, or I I guess case in point, sometimes... uh, if the Angular documentation is a bit fuzzy, I might try to dip into the GitHub repository for Angular and look at their tests, and they're they're so outlandishly complicated. <laughs> it, 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 it's I scratch my hopeless. head. I'm yeah. like, huh? Okay. Well, have we said everything we wanted to say about testing? We could probably say more, but... Yeah, we did a terrible job at sticking to a half hour. <laughs> we'll just cut everything Ben said out. <laughs> <laughs> No. Tests are pretty. Yeah. <laughs> if we cut all of Ben's uh, naysaying out of the show, we don't have any. We don't have any show left. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 despite Ben and somewhat I poo pooing on testing, if people want to learn more about testing, where, where should they go? Um, Google. Yeah, well, uh, as I've said before, you know, my head is very much in the JavaScript world, so I have some answers, but my answers are. Uh, colored heavily by javascript and and i'm sure that most of the concepts that you would learn from the resources i'm going to give would be very transferable they're going to be taught in the the context of javascript but the two that immediately spring to mind for me are uh testing javascript.com it's a it's a paid course by kent c dodds and it's fantastic um he covers everything in great detail but at the same time it isn't tedious and long and drawn out it's it's very much like no intro no outro just like here's what you do this is testing um and and it covers everything that we talked about the the static testing the unit testing integration and end-to-end um and helps you with getting the tooling set up to do that the other resource that i would recommend is egghead.io if you just go on there and you search for testing um there's a ton of different tests uh, training courses there that are specific to different technologies. So using Jest for testing or testing Angular applications or that sort of thing. Those would be the places that I would start if I was looking for some sort of training materials. Cool. Yeah, and I would do a search for whatever you're writing. Look at how to mock data. 
just look at, you know, different tools for that. We use Mockbox, you know, just because it's what we have available to us. But any type of mocking ability is really good because it just gives you the ability to set data without having to interact with anything. What about our Patreon folks? If everybody wants to... Oh, you said it first. You have to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So, hey, guys, apparently we have a Patreon and apparently people are donating to it. You know, Patreon amazes me. I always think that people are just going to take stuff for free and not uh, not contribute but people are amazingly generous and you guys we we love you so much appreciate you helping out uh, patreon.com working code pod so we have some who've already donated to one of our uh, top patrons is uh, Monty Chan thank Woo-hoo. you Monty and uh, he gets he gets to hang out on our discord we have a private discord that he can hang out and and, uh, talk to us and uh, he also gets early access to new episodes and the after show where we get really crazy so fans only fans well i don't know about that but uh yeah so if you if if you're feeling generous and you like the show drop us a few bucks and uh we we mentioned you on on the podcast yeah i mean the lower levels what four dollars four dollars a month yeah yeah you can't even buy a a cappuccino for that at starbucks yeah that's like seven bucks now what happened stupid covid (laughs) i got cheap during this all right, I did look on iTunes, and we do not have any reviews to read. There's there's a bunch of ratings. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's nice. five ratings, and they're all five stars, so thank you. Plenty Every time I listen, I click five again, hoping it'll submit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to the one person that's rated besides the four of us, thank you, <laughs> Mom. Yeah. Well, actually, I haven't rated, so it wasn't me. Uh, well, then you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. Don't worry, we'll hire you back tomorrow. Thanks. All right, so I guess everybody, thank you for listening, and uh, don't forget to share it with a friend. Those word of mouth referrals are awesome. Uh, as I've said, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts if they support it, and send us your topic suggestions. We are on Twitter and on Instagram at Working Code Pod, and we'll catch you next week. Your heart matters. You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.